Uh, good evening, everyone. Thank you, Richard, Brian. Oh, oh, hang on a wee minute. I've left the wee clicker. Look, did I just leave the wee clicker thing beside her? Thanks, man. Okay. There's a statement. All true Christians say, Lord, Lord, but not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. All true Christians say, Lord, Lord, but not all who say, Lord, Lord, are true Christians. Uh, as Richard said earlier tonight, we're picking up this controversial Jesus series. It's been a while, I know that, since we've looked at it, but for anyone who's maybe visiting or, or new to it, we've been when looking at some of the kind of hard or harder sayings of Jesus that, that as Richard said earlier, we, we kind of wish he had never said. Those statements or aspects of his teaching that are surprising, that kind of jar a bit, that shake you up a bit, they maybe even stick in your throat, but which almost always makes you realize that following Jesus involves thinking, behaving, and living differently, like radically differently. That's what comes across as so often as you listen to the teaching of Jesus. And so far, we've looked at five controversial and surprising sayings of Jesus. Here they are very quickly. The first one was, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That's a huge ask. Really, is a huge ask. And then secondly, we looked at this one. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And that's really hard. And then the third one, Lord says, Peter, how many times shall I forgive my brother and sister who sins against me? Up to seven times. And Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times or 70 times seven. In other words, unlimited forgiveness. And again, that's so hard. And then the fourth one, if anyone comes to me and does not hate mother and father, father, mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, if they don't even hate their own life, then that person can't be my disciple. It's just harsh. And then before the summer, the last one we looked at was from John 14. I am the way, the truth and the life, says Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through me, which in our culture, in our context, that is just far too exclusive. Because we live in a world where it's like the idea, surely there are different paths to God. There, there can't just be one way. Well, tonight's arresting saying is for some people one of the most ominous and disturbing. And it comes as part of, and, and Richard said it was from Matthew chapter 7, but it comes as part of the so-called Sermon on the Mount, and, and we find it in Matthew chapter 7. And, and here it is in full. I want to look at these kind of three verses together. If you want to look it up, please feel free to do that. But here's what Jesus says. And remember, I know in, in many translations or versions of the Bible, kind of they're, they're put into blocks and broken up into paragraphs, but that, that's not the way it was in the original. But this is what it says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. And then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. 
Now that is scary. To think that there will be people on judgment day. That inevitable day that is referred to in verse 22. Which in itself is a controversial idea. But it's scary to think that there will be people on that day who will stand before Jesus and call him Lord only to discover that Jesus never knew them. And not only that, to be then banished and rejected from his presence forever. And even saying that sounds shocking. You see, one of the things that this statement of Jesus raises and forces us to confront is the reality of Jesus as judge. Now, if you were here this morning, there's going to be quite a bit of overlap. But this saying of Jesus raises the reality of Jesus as judge, which is not necessarily an image or a picture of Jesus that we like to consider too carefully, too quickly, too much. I mean, words of judgment that come from the lips of Jesus are somewhat troublesome. In fact, they are appalling to most sensitive consciences today. I came across this quote during the week. Understanding of the preaching and person of Jesus depends absolutely on understanding of his concept of judgment. If there is no judgment of God as Jesus bears witness, then Jesus and his preaching can only have a constantly diminishing historical significance. I wonder, has that happened? I wonder, is that happening? Jesus as an awesome judge is a reality and it's an uncomfortable reality that we must embrace if we're going to understand and get our heads around this Lord, Lord teaching in Matthew's gospel. Jesus is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep, but one day he's going to separate sheep and goats. And if we do not portray Jesus as both a loving, caring shepherd and the one who will judge the nations, the one who will judge the living and the dead, then we are portraying, and I would be portraying, a kind of distorted, incomplete picture of Jesus. We either embrace all of him or none of him. Jesus warned about the consequences of refusing to repent and follow him. He did it time and time again. Which is why Jesus said other controversial things like, listen, see if your eye is causing you to to keep on sinning, I mean, if lust has taken a hold, if pornography has got a grip, then do you know what? You'd be better to gouge your eye out and throw it away and avoid the consequences because that's far better than your whole body going to hell. That's massively controversial. And I know Jesus is exaggerating to make a point, but here's the thing. Here's what he was really... There are real and eternal consequences to sin and Jesus never taught other ways. And so one day, as this statement from the Apostles' Creed that we often say together declares, one day, and this is just based on 1 Peter 4, verse 5, one day, 
Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. And if we ignore this aspect of the teaching of Jesus, I mean, if we pick and choose the parts of Jesus' teaching that we like and avoid the parts we don't, then we are in danger of joining the Lord, Lord Brigade who never really knew Jesus, or rather, Jesus never really knew them. Okay, so let's explore this saying a little closer. One of, the, uh, one of the most striking aspects or features of what Jesus says here regarding judgment surely concerns the people he says it to. Because based on two things that they, the people, say to Jesus on that day, which as we know is judgment day, based on what they say to Jesus on that day, it sounds to all intents and purposes that they were his followers, or they certainly believed they were his followers. And so for a start, they address him as Lord, Lord. Now that that is a title for Jesus that doesn't just imply you know something about him. To claim Jesus as Lord indicates that as far as you're concerned, you know him at a deeper and more intimate level. I mean, if you have decided to declare Jesus as Lord, give him that position, give him that place in your life. It reveals that you're serious. You're serious. Lord, Lord, not just once, but twice. Implies that these people were in. So how they address Jesus tells us so much. But the second thing they say to Jesus on that day is also interesting because how they lived their lives also indicates or insinuates that as far as they were concerned, they were the real deal. Their lives were marked by miraculous signs, supposedly performed in his name. In fact, more than that, they prophesied in his name. They drove out demons in his name. And therefore, these people clearly believed that because they carried out these major kind of practices, they must have had a de facto, an actual relationship with Jesus. But it turns out, based on what Jesus said in response, they simply didn't. Now, just as a kind of slight aside, although it's related, there, there is that incident, and some of you are thinking this, there is that incident in Acts 19, where seven sons of a Jewish priest were touring an area driving out evil spirits. And they were doing it how? To quote, by invoking the name of Jesus. So they would cite the name of Jesus over someone who was demon-possessed as a kind of magic formula. And if you read the story, it's apparent that they had seen what the apostle Paul was doing in the name of Jesus, and therefore they thought, you know, we're going to have a go at this. But one day they got quite a shock. And this is, all, this is all in Acts 19, because one day an evil spirit spoke back to them and said, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? And then the man who was possessed beat the living daylights out of them. And they ran out of his house naked and bleeding. It's all, it's all there. Now here's the thing. There's no indication in Acts 19 that these seven sons knew Jesus. Or claimed to have any relationship with Jesus. They were just attempting to copy and mimic Paul. Whereas in Matthew 7... In the sermon warning of Jesus, this controversial saying of Jesus, the people he turns away did believe themselves to be in relationship with Jesus. 
And they did perform miracles and drive out demons in his name. Or so it seems. And we'll come back to that point in a moment. But you don't have to read the Gospels for too long to discover that there were many people who claimed to have a right relationship with God. Many people who did lots of religious like practices and yet they were constantly being called out by Jesus for not being the real deal. And so you take the Pharisees, for example. Here were a bunch of pretty important people who spent an entire lifetime believing themselves to be the quintessence of holiness and the epitome of godliness. And yet, how does Jesus describe them? Hypocritical vipers and whitewashed tombs. They might have believed that they were sorted out before God, but they were anything but. People claiming to be the real thing and turning out not to be isn't unusual in Scripture. And here's the, the chilling thought. It may not be unusual on that day. In Matthew 7, the people Jesus is referring to seem to be in a similar boat to the Pharisees. They said the right thing, Lord, Lord. They did lots of public headline grabbing things that would have impressed people, that would have impressed others. But as it turns out, something was missing. Something wasn't right. Jesus never knew them. Lots of religion, lack of relationship. It's sobering. But let me go back for a moment to those dramatic acts. The driving out of demons. The performing of miracles and the prophesying. Because there is nothing in Matthew 7 in the words of Jesus to indicate that these people hadn't done those things. Their appeal before Jesus was an honest one in that sense. They weren't foolish enough to stand before Jesus and claim to have done things they hadn't done. But let's be really, really clear. Real miracles do not necessarily mean real acts of God. So important. And I don't want to get too sidetracked, but right back from the time of Moses, people have been able to perform miracles that have nothing to do with God. So, for example, whenever Aaron threw his staff on the ground as the Lord instructed him to do and it miraculously turned into a snake, Pharaoh summoned his wise men and his sorcerers and they did exactly the same thing. Each one of them threw his staff on the ground and it became a snake. So the question is, where or who was the source of that miracle and that magic? Or when Moses miraculously turned rivers and streams and canals and ponds into blood, Egyptian magicians were able to do the same thing, to quote scripture, by their secret arts. You see, if, if you believe in God, you kind of got to believe in the devil. The father of lies, the one who masquerades as an angel of light. The one who could take Jesus... The one who could take Jesus to the highest point of the temple and encourage him to jump off. The one who sifts disciples. 
The one who goes after Christians to such an extent that they're required to wear full armor. Satan has power. It's limited, it's restricted, but he has power. And therefore he can tempt. And he can create miracles. And in Matthew, or counterfeit miracles, and in Matthew 7, Jesus ultimately refers to these people, right at the very end, he ultimately refers to these people as evildoers. And what that reveals is, in part, that the source of their miracles was not God, which only leaves one alternative. And so we must never, ever underestimate the reality and deceptiveness of Satan. So the question is then, how can we know that a person belongs to Jesus? If it's not by declaring things like, Lord, Lord. If it's not by doing miraculous things, driving out demons, prophesying in his name. How do we know that a person is known by Jesus as well as belongs to Jesus? How can we know that we will never be part of those people who stand before Jesus on judgment day and claim him as Lord only to discover other ways? It's a huge question. And in some ways, to answer it in the few minutes I've got left seems impossible, improbable. But given what Jesus was talking about immediately before this controversial saying, and those of you who know God's word, those of you who know the Sermon on the Mount, you will know that what Jesus was talking about immediately just before this controversial saying, although it was also controversial, but immediately before this was all around and about false prophets. And also given what he says in this section that we've just read about who exactly enters the kingdom of heaven because he spells it out about the people that enter the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't leave us guessing. Well, based on those two things, what Jesus has been talking about, what Jesus explicitly says here, the one thing I can say with confidence regarding the reality of Christian faith and identity is that the way to spot it, the way to know it, the way to be sure about it is the presence of of positive fruit in our lives. Now, this may seem far too simplistic for some, but I'm trying to stick with what I understand as Jesus is saying here. You see, in the verses beforehand, Jesus explicitly states that it's by their fruit that you will know if people are the real deal, if people are false, or genuine. And he grabs this thoroughly biblical picture of a person's life. How does Jesus describe a person's life? That of a fruit-producing tree or plant. And he explains how a good tree produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. And throughout the scripture, this idea comes across time and time again. So from Psalm 1, where we read that those who delight in God's word or like a tree planted beside a river that bears fruit. Or Jeremiah 17, where we read that the person who trusts in the Lord, the person whose confidence and hope is in God, is like a tree that is planted by the riverbank that never stops producing fruit. 
Jesus in John 15 says, Those who remain in me will bear much fruit. This is how you know. This is how you know you're known. And right through to Galatians 5, post-Pentecost, where the fruit of the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Jesus is identified, and we read how genuine, Spirit-filled, Spirit-fueled Christians will display and will increasingly display, display love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. That's how you know. And so people might come out with all the right rhetoric, Lord, Lord. And they might even be able to perform a number of impressive God-like miracles, demonstrations of power, but it's by their fruit, the fruit of their lives that true disciples are known and identified. And following on from this, look at verse 21, the one we did read. Because in a very direct statement, Jesus confirms exactly who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Exactly. Doesn't leave us guessing. Here's who will enter the kingdom of heaven presently and eternally. Here are the ones that he identifies as being known by him. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Only the one who does the will of my Father. In other words, only the one who is obedient to God, who displays, if you want to put it like this, who displays the fruit of obedience. And if you want to know, well, well what does this kingdom obedient life look like? How do we know what it means to do the will of the Father? Well, then look again. Listen again to the teaching of Jesus in this section of the gospel, his kingdom teaching, because the Sermon on the Mount reveals the will of God that true disciples are called to do. The Sermon on the Mount reveals the will of God that true disciples are called to do. So when it comes to people who speak God words like Lord, Lord, or even perform sayings and wonders, the true indicators of whether they know Jesus, are following Jesus, and are known by Jesus are things like this. It's fruit like this. Do they love their enemies? Do they forgive those who sin against them? Forgive us our sin. Is this not what Jesus said? This is how you should pray. Forgive us our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. It's all here in Matthew 5, 6, 7. The true indicators of whether those who know Jesus and are following Jesus and are known by Jesus are those that turn the other cheek. They're those that walk the extra mile. They're those that walk the narrow road. They're those who do not judge others. They're those who pray in the secret place, who go in, close their door, and talk to their Father in heaven. That's the ones. It's the ones who fast. It's the ones who store up treasure in heaven, not just on earth. It's all there. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, but only the one who does the will 
of my Father. Only the one who is obedient. Only the one that demonstrates the fruit of obedience in their lives. The late John Stott, and I know many of you know a bit of a hero of mine, put it like this as he reflected on these difficult verses that we've been looking at. He said this, you know, we recite the creeds in church and sing hymns expressive of devotion to Christ. We even exercise a variety of ministries in his name, but he is not impressed by our pious and orthodox words. He still asks for evidence of a sincerity in good works of obedience. Remember, I know good works do not save us, but good works reveal. It's by your fruit you will know them. They reveal if that faith is true and genuine and real. William Barclay put it like this, there is only one way in which a man's sincerity can be proved and that is by his practice. Obedience is a critical fruit. Which is why, by the way, in the so-called Great Commission, Jesus instructs his disciples or his church to do what? Go, make disciples, baptize disciples, and then teach them to do what? To obey everything I've commanded. That's how you know. That's how you know you're known. True faith produces good fruit. The fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of obedience. And then when we go back to that chilling phrase of Jesus in the middle of verse 23, but I will reply, I never knew you. And it is all about relationship. It's about personally knowing Jesus and being known by him. And just to connect the kind of dots, if you like, if you do know Jesus, and, and this is where it all flows. This is where it all hangs together. And say, If you do know Jesus, truly know Jesus, born again of the Spirit of God, says Jesus, if you know me, you will obey my commands. You will produce good fruit if you truly know me. Because that is exactly how Jesus puts it in John's Gospel. So there is, I recognize, something very controversial about these words of Jesus in Matthew 7, something really quite chilling. But they stand as a warning about the reality of Jesus as judge. And as a reminder that those who truly know Jesus and are known by Jesus are those who love him and those who obey him. It is those who do the will of the Father and display good fruit. 